So these past few weeks, as we've been walking the path of Redemption Road, following the prophecies, calling God's people to repentance, calling them back to relationship with him while proclaiming a promise for the future, proclaiming hope for the future, we are approaching the focal point of the story, the buildup, what everything has been leading to. Our text this morning is Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. Now this is the first of the servant songs which we find in Isaiah. And in this text, we are introduced to the central figure of the salvation story, of the redemption story. We are introduced to the reason that we can have hope. We are introduced to the one that is promised. We are introduced to our Savior and Lord. We are introduced to Jesus. Let us read the word of the Lord this morning. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Praise pray in your name. Amen. In 1999, the movie Double Jeopardy was released. It starred Ashley Judd and, and Tommy Lee Jones. In the beginning of the movie, Judd's character is framed by her husband for his murder. She's convicted, and she goes to prison, only to find out while she is there that her husband is still alive and well. She finds out through her son, and just, you know, just through a series of circumstances, it ended up that he ended up, he killed her for the insurance money, whenever, you know, not, not very creative on that side of things, but, but there's, there's a twist to, to the idea, that this, this premise of this movie, because she's, she's a model inmate. And she earns parole after six years. And once she is released, she sets out to track down her husband and kill him. Since under the rules of double jeopardy, she cannot be convicted of murdering her husband again, since she's already been convicted of murdering him. So she can get away with it, is the thought, that's the premise of the movie. All right, is that since she's already been convicted of this particular crime, and you can't be convicted of, a similar, of the same crime... Like with the same person, you can't be convicted of killing someone twice. Now she has the ability to do it. That's, that's the premise. And so we end up finding ourselves cheering for the plucky hero as she sets off to off her husband. Why? <laughs> Why? Why are we cheering on this person who's bent on murder? Like that's what her plan is. And we're excited about it. Why are we cheering for her? Because she's been wronged. Because she was set up. Because we crave justice. 
We crave justice. Justice. We want the villains to be punished. We want justice. I use the illustration of of Double Jeopardy, but man, there are so many movies based off of a pursuit of justice. So many stories are told of the pursuit of justice. I mean, the storyline is totally overused. It's totally outplayed. It goes far beyond the saying of like, you're kicking a dead horse. Like, you know, we've heard it a ton of times. You don't need to continue to say it. Doesn't matter. Like this story continues, like justice, the idea of, of receiving justice, it's been done so many times and it will continue to be done. They will continue to release movies about it. For example, Avengers Endgame is releasing on April 26th. Projected to be the biggest movie, like, ever. Ever. Tickets went on sale this past Tuesday, and so many people were trying to get tickets that, like, the sites crashed. Ticket selling sites, AMC, Fandango, they crashed for, like, eight hours. And I would know because I was trying to get tickets. There are even people, I saw tickets, they're selling tickets for the opening night on eBay with bids starting at two grand. Too grand. And the premise of the movie is justice. Getting justice for those that have been lost. We've been making movies and telling stories about this theme forever. And we will continue to tell stories and make movies about this theme into perpetuity. Because it sells Because people want to see vindication. They want to see the bad guys get caught and punished. And the good guys restored to their rightful place. We want justice. Just as we see this in the stories that we love to love, we also see this in the world around us. There's a term that was uh, once a term of respect, but has taken on uh, more of a negative connotation in the last decade or so, and that is the term social justice warrior. This is someone who promotes socially progressive views, including feminism, civil rights, and multiculturalism, as well as identity politics, according to Wikipedia. I know you can't always trust like Wikipedia for everything, but, but that description lines up like really well with my understanding, knowledge, and uh, of and interactions with social justice warriors. And while I disagree with their stances in some areas like identity politics and tying feminism and, and abortion together, I don't think that those two things belong in the same area, I resonate deeply with their underlying premise, which is this. All people matter. No matter their race, ethnicity, belief system, sexuality, or sexual preference, all people matter. And I resonate with that. Like, I agree with that. I agree with that because the Bible agrees with that. John 3, 16, we read, For God so loved the world. The world, it doesn't say that God just loved this group or that group or people that think like this or believe that. It doesn't say he just loves those that have faith in him or agree with him. It says he loves all the world. He loves all the people in the world. All of them matter to him. Each one. 
And so should they matter to us? Should they matter to those that profess belief in the Bible? In the word that God has given us that we might know him more, that we might follow its instruction and be more like him? Of course. Of course. So why do I tend to have such a hard time with social justice warriors when I deeply agree and resonate with their premise? Because as humans, we go about trying to achieve justice in horrible fashion. We're real bad at it. Like, we're really bad. Elizabeth Nolan Brown writes in the Libertarian magazine Reason that proponents of social justice, so social justice warriors, on the left and the right, share similarities such as outrage, claims of victimhood, and portraying opponents as bullying and evil, and their side as the truly oppressed. Our answer to oppression is more oppression. Our answer to oppression is more oppression. I mean, it's simply physics, right? As, as we learn in, in Newton's third law, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You see that? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We think, you know, I've been, impre- I've been oppressed, and my outrage is deserved. My victimhood is earned, and I will now paint those that have been oppressing me, and anyone who defends them or relates to them, associates with them, or in some case, looks like them as the bullies that they are. I will bully them. I will oppress them. I will call them out, and I will call them to account. You can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs, and I have no problem cracking eggs, no problem stepping on the rights and questioning the worth of a person who disagrees with me to make this omelet. And this puppy going to be tasty. I can promise you that. And it's going to be served on a nice warm plate of justice. Justice. In Double Jeopardy, we're we're cheering on a hero who is breaking multiple laws, endangering those around her, running from authorities, all in order to actually get to kill her husband. And I find myself cheering her on. I justified all of her actions because she had been mistreated in a horrible way. She didn't deserve what she got, and so it was fine in my mind for her to dish it out a little. Okay, maybe a lot. And in pursuit of social justice, we end up doing the same thing. It doesn't matter that people get hurt along the way. The body count isn't important. What's important is that those who have been oppressed are taken, or those who have been doing the oppressing are taken to task. That they are punished. We all want justice. We all want the villains punished. So, what happens when we find out that we are the villain? What happens when we find out that we are the villain? In his commentary on this passage, Raymond Ortland Jr. writes this. He says, The more we try to force our societies into a more human shape by our own schemes, the worse it gets. Because every human plan for salvation unwittingly asserts our own idolatrous self-idealization. 
which translates into actual English, which means that the more we try to shape our societies for the better, the worse they get. Because any human plan for salvation, any human plan to make things better, any human plan to make everything right is consciously or subconsciously corrupted by sin. We can't help but poison it. We screw it up. We can't be truly impartial. We can't be fair. We can't see both sides perfectly because we are imperfect. So all of our attempts fail. We can't do it. And as we force on our societies our own sense of justice, we become the villain. And so we have a world of villains. It's villains fighting villains. There are no heroes to be found. For our social constructs are fundamentally unjust. Kind of rocks us a little bit, right? Our social constructs are fundamentally unjust. They are selfish and self-serving, crafted by our own personal experiences and placed before our own personal idols. For you see, injustice is more than just a political dysfunction. It is a spiritual evil. It's a spiritual evil. We cannot fight it on our own. We need help. We are desperate. Desperate for help. In Isaiah, we see, we read, we are told that help is on the way. In point of fact, for us, it is already here. Are we ready and willing to trust in it? To believe in it? To follow its instructions? To let it shape our sense of justice? Let's read our text this morning again, taking notice of where we find the word justice. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. Behold, servant, my servant, whom I uphold, my my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. The word translated justice in this text includes within its scope all of the longings for a better life and a better world. A just world to Isaiah is a human society as God means it to be with no corrupting idolatries. No individual putting down their their fellow human. No individual putting themselves, their thoughts, desires, beliefs, or anything else ahead of God. That is a just world according to Isaiah. Do we see that in our world today? How are we doing in pursuing a biblically just world? 
Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. For Jesus will succeed with his gentle servanthood where we have failed with our coercive pride. In his commentary, Orland Jr. continues that the hope of the world lies in the servant of the Lord, the delight of God, the quiet healer, the man for others who wields the only true power that exists. The power to reorder human civilization, not by bullying it, but by suffering, not by imposing demands on us, but by absorbing our sins and miseries into himself. We try to find justice through force, by saying the ends justify the means, by bullying, by ignoring and dehumanizing those who disagree with us. We make our play for justice through power, How did Jesus do it? He did it by suffering. We're so focused on our own desire for justice that we completely overlook God's demand for justice. Our failing, our self-serving idols, our attempts to bring about justice by taking justice from others, our sin is an affront to God. The harder we work to force our own personal ideals onto those around us by minimizing their humanity and emphasizing our own, the more we offend the one who formed and loves each one of us. And because he is perfect, because God is perfect, something had to be done to deal with the insult of humanity's failings. For God loved us, though God loved us, and loves us still, he could not be in relationship with us. For we were sinful, caught up in our own self-importance, caught up in our own ideals, focused on what we wanted, not what God wanted. And because of our sin, even when we were focused on what God wanted, we were corrupt at the core by our nature, we were sinful from the time we were conceived. There is no way for us to plead, please God on our own merit or worth. We could not give God justice. And yet justice is demanded. And so out of his great love for us, God sent Jesus, the suffering servant, the central figure of our text this morning, the central figure of our faith, the one who brings justice. But he didn't do it in the way that we expected him to. He didn't do it in the way that maybe we wanted him to. He didn't bring justice by getting into politics and setting everything right by our standards. That's what his people wanted him to do. That's what they were expecting him to do. I have a pretty strong feeling that's how we'd expect him to work it out in today's society as well. Free us from persecution. Save your people from dying. Free us from those that oppress us. Spare us from pain. Protect the weak. Do away with racism, bigotry, tensions, and distrust between socially and economically divided factions. 
Punish those who have been the oppressors. Give power to those who have been weak, who have been used, who have been hurt again and again. Use your power politically, logically, according to our wisdom. I can see us wanting it to play out that way. I can see us expecting us Expecting Jesus to do it that way. It's not a hard story to write. But he didn't bring justice politically. He brought, Jesus brought justice spiritually. Which is where we all truly, desperately need it. Though we may want to ignore it. That's where we actually need it. For our flesh will one day be gone, but our spirits are eternal. And God knows what is more important. He knows the true battle being waged. He knows that pain and hurt and suffering here can and do bring us closer to him. But the sin that brought the pain and suffering into this world in the first place had to be dealt with. So that we could have an eternal home. So that we could be eternally close to God, our Father. Jesus came to satisfy God's demand for justice. All of our sin had to be atoned for. It had to be paid for. And Jesus paid for all of it on the cross. It was our sin that kept him there. It was our sin that caused God to forsake him, to leave him to die a death he did not earn in a world in which he did not belong. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that we might be truly free. This is how he brought about the means to true justice, to a better life in a better world, in heaven. Forever. The road of redemption that Jesus walked is not necessarily the road that we would have expected him to walk. But it's the road that he needed to walk. And he walked it for us. He brings us justice. Not through becoming the oppressor. But through suffering perfectly for each one of us. What an amazing, powerful, and wonderful God we serve. Amen.